This is Terrio Media. How you can still buy property in a seller's market because, face it, it's a jungle out there. If you don't know, you'll find out. It might have cooled a little bit, but there's still a lot of competition. But it's not such a scary place that you can't overcome. I'm going to show you how to turn this seller's market into your own private buyer's market. You ready? Let's go. Welcome to the all-new Epic Real Estate Investing Show, the longest-running real estate investing podcast on the interwebs, your source for housing market updates, creative investing strategies, and everything else you need to retire early. Some audio may be pulled from our weekly videos and may require visual support. To get the full premium experience, check out Epic Real Estate's YouTube channel, epicrei.tv. If you want to make money in real estate, Sit tight and stay tuned. If you want to go far, share this with a friend. If you want to go fast, go to reiace.com. Here's Matt. All right, so by the time we're done here, you'll know everything that you need to know to turn an aggressive seller's market into your own little private buyer's market. You know, as my my cousin shopped for homes during the pandemic, he realized he had stepped into a frenzy of bidding wars and soaring property prices. So before he landed his home in Florida, he made generous offers on several properties only to lose out to more aggressive bidders multiple times. He persevered though, eventually locking in a deal by offering $22,000 over the seller's asking price. Now this experience was very common during the pandemic and it's only decelerating just a little bit post pandemic. You know, too many buyers are chasing too little inventory for would be buyers. Scoring a home in this market isn't just a matter of paying a bit more. The shortage of supply has added a new degree of difficulty and drama. I mean, I got to experience this particular drama firsthand when I purchased my very first home a few months ago. And I'll tell you in a minute how I found my home in less than a week. So you can do what I did in your market. But for the most part, to navigate a market this tricky, expert guidance from someone who's willing to put in a little bit of work is more important than ever. You want to partner with someone who has seen it all before, who knows how to handle challenging circumstances can think a bit outside of the box and who will fight for your interests. So hiring an experienced buyer's agent, one who can be nimble and quick on their feet, that can be a huge asset. You know, I remember when I first sat down with my agent and she gave me this giant list of to-dos to prepare for this real estate jungle. And I'll run down that list for you right now, but before I do, it's important first to determine that you are indeed in a seller's market. So all of this frenzied atmosphere is national. Real estate, it's still local, and buying a home in your area may not require such drastic measures. So ask your agent to help you calculate the absorption rate, which tells you how many months it would take to sell all the listed homes for sale in a given area if no new homes came onto the market. If that number is less than six months or even less than four, really, you're in a seller's market. And the lower the number, the more power that lies with the seller. The national absorption rate of inventory is 2.2 months. That's a super strong seller's market. But again, real estate is local. So take a moment to do the math with your agent to know what you are dealing with. All right. The six steps of preparation my agent shared with me. First one was move fast. Inventory shortages mean homes are selling quickly. So be ready to jump at any moment to tour properties the moment that they hit the market and prepare to sign an offer on the spot. You know, I was an agent for four years before I was a real estate investor and I would tell my clients the same thing. Speed is essential in an ultra competitive market Two, go through full mortgage underwriting before you start shopping. 
and this contributes to your ability to move fast. In more sedate times, a pre-qualification letter from a lender would satisfy most sellers. These days, however, you need at least a pre-approval letter. And even then, it's not a guarantee of getting your offer accepted. Sellers reviewing multiple offers typically will look for the highest price. But what I have found more times than not, the sure thing frequently trumps the highest price. So it's a good idea to go well beyond a pre-approval letter and go through full underwriting so that all that's left is a satisfactory appraisal. Doing this upfront will put you in a much better position to compete with the all-cash buyers. Third thing, look for homes under your budget so you can bid up. The fact is, you're likely going to have to pay more than the asking. And depending on the competition from other buyers, it could be a significant amount more. And this can be tough, I understand. You know, few people are satisfied buying a house that they can afford. I mean, we're dreamers. We want something nicer than what we can afford. And that's going to be really tough to pull off in a seller's market. Number four, make your best offer first. You know, in normal markets, a home's asking price acts as a ceiling. It's a number that reflects seller's aspirations, but not necessarily the reality of the market. In a strong seller's market, like the one that we're in, however, the asking price is often the floor, meaning that's where the bidding begins. You've got to put your best foot forward immediately, especially if you really like the house. You got, you got to go in at or above market. If you have the ability to offer cash, do it. And it might not feel right, but other buyers are doing it. And if you want to compete, you've got to play the game. Further, each time a house is sold, a new comparable sale is set. So it's likely you'll have to offer even more for the next house should you lose this one. Now, number five, little sound might sound a little bit contradictory, but don't overpay. And this is a fine line to walk. It's, it's easy to get caught up in the competition of trying to win a home, especially if you've lost a few already. That's my previous suggestion. Put your best offer up front. Understand that paying more than what the seller is asking is not necessarily overpaying. A house is worth what the market is willing to pay for it. And if others are willing to pay more, then that's what the house is worth. But if you overdo it, you run the risk of the house not appraising. For buyers who need financing, the home appraisal can act as a guardrail against paying too much. If the appraisal comes up short and you still want the home, you'll have to add more cash to the deal to make up that difference. If the seller asks you to remove your appraisal contingency, that's a sign that even the seller knows you're probably overpaying. Now, number six, make an emotional connection with the seller. Now, this isn't always possible but it's worth a shot. I understand the psychology of this and, and I would suggest the same thing to buyers when I was an agent, but when competing with 10, 20, 30 or more of their offers, I don't see this cutting through the dollar signs of those other offers. The strategy here though is by establishing a connection with the seller, your offer might stand out from other similar offers. Traditionally, buyers agents have tried to make their clients stand out with love letters, we called them family photos, or even videos, various personal appeals from the buyer to the seller. Now, most agents, they've stopped playing this game due to potential fair housing implications if a buyer reveals personal information in the letter that influences the seller to accept or reject the offer. But those were all of my agent's suggestions. And although I did have my own ideas, I decided to follow her lead. So Mercedes, my wife, and I did everything that the agent advised us to do before we started looking at properties. We started viewing homes on a Saturday, and sure enough, we submitted an offer on our first home that night. And we were moving fast, like we were told to. We put our best offer forward right up front, just like she advised. 
And before the sun could come up Sunday, we got word that the seller accepted another offer. So we got back into the agent's car on Sunday, found another home and submitted another offer before noon. And once again, by nightfall, the seller had accepted another offer. And Mercedes, she was pretty disappointed. She really liked those two houses, especially the second one. After I thought about it though, although I buy houses all the time, I do indeed lose all the time. I just don't feel it because I write a bunch of offers daily and I'm emotionally unattached. And I brought that up to Mercedes and suggested that we start tomorrow shopping for our home in the same way that we buy investment properties. Let's just write a bunch of offers in one day. So that Sunday night, we together, we, we sat in front of the computer, we pulled up Zillow, and we started looking at what was available. We marked each house that we found acceptable until we had a list of 10. Then Monday morning, we gave that list to our agent and told her to offer full asking price to all 10 of those properties, sight unseen. And within 24 hours, we received four counter offers. Mercedes and I, we countered back, and two of those counters that, that we sent over to the seller, two of those were accepted. And it was then when we went to view those two properties. So by Thursday, we made our decision. Per our inspection contingency, we canceled the contract on the property we didn't want, and we proceeded to close on the one that we did want. So the agents recommended suggestions up front to compete in a seller's market. They were fine, but the seller still had all the power. You know, even taking all of those precautions, as a buyer, you're still at a pretty large disadvantage. They might help, but it's not a guaranteed win, that's for sure. So the market favors sellers at the moment, but it doesn't mean you have to play by the seller's rules. You can make up your own rules and play your own game. We might not have landed our dream home, but we found a very nice one quickly, and we didn't overpay for it either. If you're in the market for a home, take from here what works for you and apply it in your process. If you'd like to learn how we buy 10 to 15 properties per month using very little of our own money, head over to reiace.com, answer a few questions, and then just pick a time to hop on the phone to brainstorm some ideas on what that might look like working together towards your financial goals. reiace.com. Please stand by. We've got overhead to pay. We'll be right back. Remember that person that gave up on their real estate investing dreams? Neither do I. Let's keep going. Back to the show. Today, we're going to talk about how to invest during a recession, specifically the do's and don'ts. And I've got a, a great guest for you today. I'm very excited about this guest and, and getting to know him a little bit more and tapping into his expertise and, and letting you guys tap into it as well. The big man himself, Jerry Norton. Can you hear me? Okay. I can hear you. So where are you right now? Looks gorgeous. Uh, I'm at my lake house in Montana. Ah, nice. Everyone needs one of those, I think. Right? Yeah. How long are you staying there? Uh, we've been here all summer. We're getting ready to leave in a couple weeks. Very good. And I heard the home is uh, Puerto Rico for you. Yeah. Yeah. We live out of the year in Puerto Rico. That's right. Sweet. Well, cool. Well, it's nice to meet you. We got like 50 million mutual friends, but we never got to meet before. So I was looking forward to this and, uh, Ew. you know, we're, I've been here rambling a little bit, so we should probably jump right into talking real estate. Okay. Cause my, uh, my rambled skills aren't what they used to be. <laughs> anyway, Jerry, so 
I guess talking that we're moving into a new market, I'm noticing it. I mean, maybe I'm just making an assumption. Are you noticing it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, everyone who's been in real estate the past couple of years, we've gotten really spoiled. So, and everybody starts freaking out, right? Mm-hmm. Right. But, you know, while, and so, oh, I mean, the market ebbs and flows. We've been on a really great couple of years and, yeah, I think we're seeing a little bit of a slowdown. I can feel it in some of the deals I'm doing. Or, uh, sellers willing to talk, properties yeah. that didn't a little long, longer. So, yeah. Yep. Yep. That's exactly what, what I'm seeing. I'm, I noticed it right away. It was almost an overnight shift where the uh, my seller conversations were much more pleasant. <laughs> they were much more giving of information. I'm, I'm looking at my inbox through my CRM and you know, usually I just see a bunch of numbers and no messages, but now I'm seeing half of them are coming in with actual voicemails and asking to be called back. And uh, so I started noticing that right away. I've seen a big upswing on my uh, wholesaler email, a lot of list, you know, mm-hmm. and so I know, know that they're getting more inventory as well. Active wholesalers that I, I network with that bring leads in the market where I like to fix and flip lot more leads. So in it there as well. Got it. Got it. So let's kind of talk about the three different elements. Like we've got, we've got the, our, our marketing, we've got those conversations, then we got our exit strategies. So let's kind of, I guess, address each one of those as, are we making any modifications or any adjustments? So as far as your marketing goes and how you're generating deals, um, well, let me ask you this first, but just before we ask that, have you, how long have you been in real estate? Were you Still investing in 2005, six, seven. Did you make it all the way through that whole thing like I did? Yeah, I got in in 04. You know, it took me about, about a year to go full time, full time, mostly wholesaling at that point. Mm-hmm. And so I rode through that whole wave through the 08 crash. Um, I continued flipping, actively flipping at all during 08 through 2009, all, all the way 2012 when the market started to read things much differently than, than we do now. But, you know, that's the, I think, Matt, that's the everybody watching. I'm getting a lot of questions. I'm sure you are too, which is, is now, is now a good time to invest in real estate? Should I wait? My answer is always, I believe as long as people live in houses, we have a business model. The way we do it might change, but in houses, which means we always have a business. It just, mm-hmm. it just, we, we may change the way we do that very excited about a slowdown because I think if we do things be a lot more opportunity I mean I don't know about you but it's been a lot of work to get good deals for I'm excited for a time when we can get deals without as much work now bleach change but the idea of getting into deals that are that we've been doing it the past couple years that part I'm really excited about Mm -hmm. me too Thing that like when you're talking about getting better deals, like it's better deals, but I also got more options. You know, I'm I'm calling more people back. I, you know, I, I allocate a certain amount of money each week to to how I'm going to distribute it through the deals, and instead of like trying to pick the best three out of four, you know, I've got now I got the th- best three out of ten. You know, and so that I'm seeing a lot. So that has a big adjustment on your actual just your negotiating disposition. Like you're not trying so hard to get every single one, you know, and you don't have to work as hard. So I'm noticing that right away for sure. 
Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I like to be an acquisition engineer. You know, mostly I work with wholesalers and flippers, and a lot of people tend to talk for as your only option. So I got to get this really low cap offer price. I like to implement creative. Uh, we've even been doing where, where we'll list property, sale, then we'll go ahead and utilize a real estate license. We'll list it for them. I'm always looking for maximum. How do I maximize every single lead that we get? Because it's energy, it's work, it's cost right. to get in front of a seller. And if I'm having a conversation with it to, to win-win this. And so everyone's got to be thinking a little more creatively, multiple ways that you, you can take down deals other than just that low cash offer. Yep, for sure. And that's always been kind of my game anyway. Um, I always start with price just because that's what sellers understand them all. So it takes less education on your part, you know. But once you reach that impasse and you're not coming to seeing eye to eye on the price, then I've always gone towards the, the creative side of things. So um, what's nice about it is like they're, they're more receptive now than they have been in the last few years. So this is, uh, this is good. I think right now, if, if we continue to see interest rates go up, that will create a financing opportunities because I think sellers are going to re- realize, hey, ideal because I've got this 4% loan. So this buyer that's looking at this deal, they'll pay a whole lot more to get into that 4% loan than if they have to percent or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to see a lot more opportunity for creative and seller financing for sure. Yep. Yep. I just had a, a call last week um, uh, with a guy that had a 2.75% loan. And I was like, Dude, like you, your, your loan is as much of an asset as your house is right now. And we were talking about that. And then, and so I tried to put all the numbers. I was very excited, but he had a 2.75 and a 15 year loan. So the payment was like double. And I was like, dude, you just killed my cash flow up there, you know? But yes, those opportunities are coming. So what do you think about this? About a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, I released, I did a, a an interview with um, Jason Hartman and we were talking about the, the rising interest rates and I, I can make that connection that, you know, this could really put a damper on subject to because banks haven't been real aggressive on pursuing that, that acceleration clause because the rates just got lower and lower and lower and they wouldn't really, they had no incentive to do that. And I, I did this video last year and I was just like, I think subject two is going to be dead once it, once it moves, the interest rate starts moving up because that's why it was put in place in the first place back in the, what was it, in the late eighties, I guess. Um, but do you, have you, I haven't done a subject two in about a year. So have you done one and have you noticed any sort of different reaction or exchanges with the banks? Yeah, great question. I mean, then, so we do quite a bit of subject two and, and seller finance and we have involved with the way we structured the deal. So like a do on sale clause or any of those um, but you might be right. That may be something that, that comes up, up here in the future with higher rates. I don't know. That's a great question. But I, the way I look at it is buy here and I want to buy subject to, I'm actually using that seller's engine. That's an asset to help the seller see how much of an asset kind of coach that seller 
or on why they should actually sell subject to to me and how because of his great interest rate. So I'll run the numbers and I'll say, look, but it's this number. If I've got to bring new debt, you know, like if I got to buy, buy it, finance it, hold it or whatever, your, your deal is worth this much more to me because, because it's all about that cash flow. So 7% is a huge swing in, in, in monthly payment, which means more for same property at a 4% rate. So mm-hmm. I think it's how we position this, how we talk to sellers. Um, I don't know that sellers really understand. By the way, Matt, I've got a handful of those of that exact loan. It's a 15-year program at an interest rate. Annie did a deal where they had uh, they let you do up to 10 of those for investment to that and uh, refinance a bunch of rentals using that same rate. And like that, I mean, like it's like free money practically, you know, it's amazing that there's even an five interest rate on a loan. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But for- I mean, if you look at the, uh, the inflation rate, even that rates at 6%, we're still being paid to borrow money by the economy, right? We're still at a negative 2% on the interest rate. So, I mean, gosh, borrow as much as you can possibly get right now, in my opinion. Yeah. And on the, on the loans, I know you're right. Your, your pay goes way up because they're amortized over 15 versus 30. You know, I looked at it like, and I'm in a different situation than some people, but I'm low and more concerned about the other benefits. Appreciation. And as long as that loan was positive, a hundred bucks or 150 bucks, I was all in on doing the 15 versus the 30. I'm getting that really low rate. I'm paying down that loan, you know, way fast. And I'm, I'm capitalizing on the depreciation write-off. So it kind of hit the other things that were meant for me anyway on those, those loans. Mm-hmm. Now I'm wishing I did more of those. Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, hindsight, it's a killer, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So, all right. So as far as your, your exit strategies are going right now, what do you, what are the stuff you're doing more of and you're being cautious of others? Is it changing anything about that or is this business as usual for you? Well, business as usual in the sense that I'm, I'm still, I think right now everybody should be doubling down because I think great deals are coming. So really just, this really should be making even more offers, you know, work, get deeper discounts. I want a bigger, I want a bigger deal now because I think there, you can get them, but in fix and flip, which I like to do a lot of fix and flip, there are some very significant changes because like wholesaling, you know, Oh, you're in the deal a little bit longer. Maybe you're in it for four, five, six months. Right. And we're on market. Um, I'm looking at actives more than I ever did before because I want us that are sitting. So now the sold comps are a little less relevant because acting mean a lot to me. Um, um, I just looked at a deal that I was comping. 75 was my sold comps for for flips like renovated homes at 250 and they were sitting for you know 45 60 days telling me 275 is not the arv anymore right right and so arv's down being a little more conservative on arv and um i've been getting meaning very doing very minimal work on 
on houses because forgiving. They just want a house. And so we've been really getting away with not much in the way. And now we're reevaluating that. Now I'm going back to regular fix and flip where it's, we're going to replace that 10 year old roof. You know, now I got to stand out. Now I got to be the best house. Whereas before you didn't, you have anything for sale and someone would buy it and pay over. I make some of those adjustments, but really this is just the, I mean, if, if you've been in real estate since COVID really, then you haven't followed fundamentals. I'm just going, if the fundamentals are, you better really understand your numbers. You better really understand or you can't just ride appreciation and, and think that it's going to be worth 30 as soon as you list it in three months. Months like mm-hmm. you got to be following again sound business practices. People are going to be hurt that that think they can get away with what they've been getting away. With. I had to follow normal business practices, so I'm just going back to some of that. Uh, I mean, we just buy at a discount and, and relist and make a ton of money without doing anything. Right. So we are adjusting some some of the ways that we're doing things back. To to the old way of doing things. Right. Yeah. One of the things that, uh, and we're still having a little bit of issue with your audio. So I'm going to kind of recap some of your stuff a little bit so people can hear because I really get what you're, I'm picking up what you're putting down. As far as you're running your comps and having known your numbers, you'd said something really key. And it's what I'm teaching everything. All of my coaching students here is that, you know, we really haven't had to look at the first sales, the actives for a really long time because that would give you a skewed number of, of you're paying too much because everyone keeps going higher and higher and higher. But now if, if you're going to, if your intent is to go ahead and flip that property, whether you fix it or not, you really want to look at what that, what your competition is going to be once you actually do own it. What is the, are the actives going to be? And I think, you know, but I have a sold comp here for this 275 or whatever it is. But like, you have to understand that that 275, it closed on that day, but it entered contract at least 30, maybe 45, 60 days before that. So that's really a snapshot of what the value was a month or two ago. And so you got to be really careful on that. The other part is when we're talking about the, you hear on the news all the time right now, how the market is cooling, the market is slowing. Um, there, there's two things. The appreciation is cooling, but it's still appreciating. So there's one aspect of it. The second thing is the sales activity may be slowing, but the median price point continues to rise. So one thing that you had said is if you're going to be a fix and flipper now, you kind of have to be the best one on the market now. You have to put some money into it. You've got to be the prettiest house because that's still, um, at least here, here in Vegas with the, with the agents that I, that I know, there's still, um, the auction type environment, the multiple bids on the nicest houses. Like if you're, if you're a B plus, or a B, you are sitting. If you're an A minus, A, A plus, you're, you're still selling really fast. Are you seeing the same thing? Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. So like, you know, I used to have some wooden touch, like, you know, a two bedroom or a smaller square footage, a market where nothing, it didn't even matter. There's a buyer for it, just do it. And now I'm going back to, I got really closely at, am I in a quiet street do, do i have the right square footage but when there's a buyer in the marketplace and he's got options i gotta be the best option right looking at how you're doing that rehab you gotta create an a a minus a a you want to move it and your number so it's back 
back to the fundamentals, right? The fundamentals create a product that a buyer's going to want that's going to hit an ideal buyer in your market. So I definitely agree with that. And I've, I've listened to some of your stuff, Matt, and I, I tend to agree with you. Boomer, I see a lot of like the market's going to crash and all the sensationalization. And that gets a lot of good ideas is there's still the fundamentals of, of supply and demand. And I watched one of your videos recently and, and you talked about, um, you know, six months of inventory versus. And so guys, uh, we're still in, in a negative, there's still not enough homes to meet the demand. And that's a real issue anytime soon. We cannot solve that problem overnight. And so as long as buyers can place and there's not enough homes to meet that demand, and we will not see a crash. We, it, it's a, so anything else is doing, it's the fundamentals of supply and demand. Yeah, 100%. I mean, to take that even further, when you say it's not going to end anytime soon, I mean, there's a lot of calculations, a lot of very smart people out there that have done these predictions. You know, since we had our peak building in 2006-ish, and then, you know, 2007 hit and Everyone just stopped building and it went on a, a deep, deep dive. And that removed a lot of people from the industry that never came back. And the people that stayed were still, you know, they're kind of licking their wounds for a while and didn't jump back into it too aggressively for a really long time. And that time was about 10 years of a deficit of building. And that's what we're experiencing right now. And what has compounded and made it even worse is not do we have it, not only do we have a deficit of building, we had a surge in population that was approaching home buying age. Yeah. So you've got, so this is how I see with the supply and demand part is that you've got the average, the, the peak age for the millennial right now is 32 years old. The average age of the first time home buyer is 34. So you could look at this and put those two together and really logically come to the conclusion that, wow, within the next 24 to 48 months, you will see more demand for housing than this country has ever seen in the history of ever. existence. Yeah. And we have a 10 year deficit of building. So it's like, yeah, I see. I hey, see. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. To that as well. Um, I read an article about this, but we've also seen a in regulation and zoning requirements and difficulty. And even I've seen this personally, because I do some new construction. And I would say in the past five years to get an approved building permit to just to just spec a house, like I'm not even talking to spec a house, has easily doubled. So we've made it more difficult to and, and and now there's even less ability to apply that that right now. And yep. so that adds to what what you're saying here, which is is it's nice to meet this demand problem we have and unless they, even if they drastically loosen criteria, a bunch of investment comes on and they start building again, it's going to take time to catch up with that. Yep. I see really only like th three options. And I've, I've been thinking about this a lot. Either one, the government has to start building houses or two, they got to start subsidizing and making it easier for build builders to build houses. Or three, they do nothing and we're just going to have chaos and, and we're going to have multiple families living under single roofs. Well, I don't 
I don't know if you've seen it, but I, I've been reading a lot and rental demand has skyrocketed and, and it's going to continue because rates go up, less people can buy in now, right? So they're going to continue rent. So there, there's, there's about 10 markets in the U.S. that have 20 to 30% rental increase. And across the board, I think nationally, it's at like 15%. And you can see it. Like I, it's, I mean, like it's insane to look at a one-bedroom apartment is like 1900 bucks or something like that. It's insane. And there's a waiting list, find rentals. It's, it's really difficult to find rentals. Mm-hmm. There's two things that are happening right now that very rarely happen. And one we already touched on where the, the CPI index, the inflation is higher than the mortgage rates. So that's a, that's a rare occurrence. And I, we have that right now. The second thing that's very rare is where rents are outpacing appreciation of the sales prices now. That it's usually like three year lag that the rents have to catch up. And this is all just reflective of the demand. Like people need housing. So if they, if they're getting pushed out, because of the mortgage rates and they can't afford to buy, well, then they got to go rent, but they still need a house. So either they're going to buy it or they're going to rent it. And so the idea of, of really sharpening your, your creative financing skills and being able to start taking some of these properties over subject to, and with seller financing is really going to position yourself for the long term. I mean, you get, you do just 10 of those, you're probably set for life. It might not be an immediate impact, but, but you are good. You're start, you're in a real stable position. I'm really thinking, Matt, that uh, in the next 12 months, some loosening up. I think we're going to see, it's going to take a minute for sellers. I think it's happening, but I really see the effect. But I think sellers are going to really start to loosen up. They're going to get off of that. They're going to stop drinking their own Kool-Aid as far as like, like, oh, my house is just going to be worth more and more and more. And you're going to see a whole nother level of motivation that we haven't seen in a while the people that are I like, I like i like to call them acquisition engineers but the people that be in front of those sellers meaning you're you're doing that lead and you're getting on the phones you're getting you're putting offers out there you're going to get some amazing deals but you've got people who are on the sidelines right now and my advice is like get in the game man if you're concerned about deeper but don't don't sit the sidelines right now get in the game game because some amazing deals and and they're there for you know i think for sure and because of the supply and demand dynamic i think this little slowdown we're experiencing right now could be the last little slowdown for a long time i mean if if it lasts six months maybe it lasts a year or two but because of the amount of people in comparison to the amount of houses i don't it's it's going to continue to go up and up and up so I don't think it's going to get any easier after this little, you know, break that we're having right now. If you think about it, Matt, you know, like we look at Live Straight, for example, and it's so funny to me, the reaction to that, where people are like, man, you know, in a couple months, it went up so high. But yet, if you, but if you look historically, a 6% rate is actually not even that bad. You know, it's not even not normal and it's and in a minute when everyone kind of reset that you know when when rates go to eight we're gonna think six is amazing <laughs> you know I, I think it's gonna i think it's gonna be hilarious when and when that is that 
six percent is an amazing deal, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas right now it's like, oh my, leave six percent, you know, because it's not historically speaking. Right, right. Well, it should have been in two thousand four or five when it was a massive appreciation. We were at five and six percent. That's yeah. what the rate were. Yeah, exactly. Cool. So let's kind of, let's conclude this. It's to make like, say three action points, how, to, and let's answer the question, how to invest in real estate during a recession. So what do you think is the, the first thing for everyone to keep in mind at all times? Well, you have to turn on your, your, I like to call it, I like to refer to lead gen as a faucet that you turn, turn on and you never turn off the mentals of, of wholesaling, flipping, any type of real estate investing is you in front of enough leads because if you don't have enough leads in front of you, however, then it, you're simply not going to have, have enough opportunity for sellers to say yes to your offer. It all, always starts with that. Like everybody's got to understand how do I get leads every single day? Um, but I think big picture, if, if you're not, not getting those leads in front of them every single day to be making five offers a day, if you make five offers a day where you're putting a number in front of the seller, if you do that on a consistent basis, you will be getting deals on a monthly basis. It's the scientific data of, you know, yep. the numbers. So if you're going to get in front of enough opportunity, I think that's first and foremost. I feel like that's kind of a given about that. that. Number one. Yeah. Uh, Leads. First and foremost. Um, I also feel a lot of be look, looking at your exits a little bit differently than you've been looking at them. If you've been planning on exit or you just have a mindset that it's just going to get more just because time goes by to adjust that and go back to really looking at data that's going to support an exit. You feel, and if you can feel good about that exit number by looking at relevant data and relevant actives now. So this this goes against everything I've been teaching, you know, looking at things, which is put put a lot more weight on, on actives and days I'm looking days on market. We touched on this a little bit before. Definitely be looking at properties, be like an A, like Matt said, I love your analogy, A minus, A A plus, meaning it's gonna have high demand. You know, assuming I do think to it maybe like fix it up or whatever. I'm not thinking about location. Does it have the features that a buyer is going to want? If he's on basements and this one doesn't have a basement, you got to be thinking through those things now. Because whatever your exits are, then you got to be thinking, how do I attract the buyers? I don't want to be sitting because I'm not the ideal property that but that's to look for properties that ideal buyers are going to want. Um, adjust your ex- strategy. So be looking at ARVs, not just ARVs, but also repairs. What do I do to this property so that if a buyer's got 10 houses to pick from, he chooses, how do I make my house attractive, priced accordingly mm-hmm. <laughs> so that a buck one's on the market? And if you're making those small adjustments, like I think those are small adjustments, Matt. I, you're going to win right now as the market corrects. And if we continue declining, 
you know, keep in mind, like we talked about, I don't think we're going to see this mass prices plummet and we get flooded with foreclosures. I just don't see that happening. And, and on mind is everything we're talking about here is very market specific. I think some markets are going to weather this. Like I think the Phoenix is and the, and a lot of Florida markets and the, and the Las Vegas markets, the sands markets where the demand is just so ridiculously high that, you know, appreciation, maybe we see 15 or, you know what, you know what I mean? Like we're still going to see and for housing in a lot of markets. So if you're not in one of those markets, looking at the trends, days on market, there's a lot of data that can help support what you do as far as uh, how much it's going to drop. You know, there's some good predictors out there that can help. But I think if you're really paying closely attention to some of these indicators, you can make a very analysis. You can buy it from steep, steep discount, phenomenal deals right now. Totally agreed. Totally agreed. Yeah, the, the sound didn't improve that much. So again, a lot of comments over here. So I'm going to try and recap for you a little bit. Okay, so I hope you get it. So the first thing was steady leads. You need steady lead flow, right? So you got to, whether you're going to work for them or you're going to pay for them, they got to be steady. Second thing is you got to make offers. You got to make offers every day. You know, when it comes to the real estate's value, it's all about location, location, location. When it comes to the succeeding in real estate investing, it's offers, offers, offers. You got to, you got to give the ability, the seller, the ability to accept something. And I really like, like I'm, I push it even a little bit further. You got to put it in writing. You have to put the pen in their hand and give them the ability to sign something. You got to do that. And if you don't do that, you can do everything else right. And you're never going to make any money. Okay. So that was that. Third thing, which, and we're talking about like, if you're going to be fixing and flipping, and I'm, I would say to some degree, maybe even rentals, but mostly fixing and flipping. You got to really pay attention to your customer now. What does your customer want? And, and right now we're looking at the, the grade A properties are still selling with multiple offers. And the ones that are B pluses and B minuses, like the ones like the little, the whole tail stuff that we could put as a C plus and still get, sell it right away. That's all kind of slowing down a lot. So that was the other one. Pay attention to what your customer wants. You got to be a real service provider in, in that regard. You're going to get some flipper. And I think the other big thing that you just said was, was key is, um, it's not a national market anymore. The, the locations are going to be very individualized. And, you know, for example, I've got a number of students in, um, in Florida and I'm having very different conversations with them than I'm having with the people in, shoot, let's see, in St. Louis, right? Or, you know, very different conversation. Yeah. And, you know, I'll help one and we're going, we're comping out a property and we got all kinds of cops and all this stuff. And then we go to Florida, like, oh my gosh, everyone's held onto their property and nobody has sold anything. And there aren't any cops, like, and they're noticing this type of thing. And so, yeah, it, uh, location is going to be important again. So I don't, did I miss anything? That was kind of it, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Sweet. Well, Jerry, let's do this again when you get back to civilization and we can hear you better because uh, people were... <laughs> Brian, to hear you, every word that you said, and they were hanging on every single word. If you want, we can do it again. And make the, the audio yeah. wrong, but I apologize. for. Thank you very much. And, and thank you for giving to, to your, your people. And thank you for sharing this time with me. Thank you. Appreciate you. Okay. Take care. I'll see you soon. Okay. Yep. And that wraps up the epic show. 
If you found this episode valuable, who else do you know that might too? There's a really good chance you know someone else who would. And when their name comes to mind, please share it with them and ask them to click the subscribe button when they get here and I'll take great care of them. God loves you and so do I. Health, peace, blessings, and success to you. I'm Matt Terrio, living the dream. Yeah, yeah, we got cash flow. You didn't know, homeboy, we got cash flow. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.